Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Denham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. When the coronavirus crisis hit, we fielded a rapid response team that has grown to more than 70 subject matter experts and leaders to train families. We recruited them from a pool of experts we've developed over the last 35 years who have served on many projects in patient and caregiver safety. We've also utilized the recorded messages of national leaders captured in our two Discovery Channel documentaries and prior programs. Our original goal was to serve essential critical infrastructure workforce families. And then in August of 2020, all educators were added to the 16 industry sectors. Our task is to generate free live and online training to help them break family infection transmission chains. However, we found the general public loved to be trained with them. So we expanded our program to everyone. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce Jennifer Dingman, who's a longstanding patient safety advocate. She's a co-author of peer-reviewed medical papers and winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. She has served on a number of federal patient safety committees and programs. Of greatest importance was her service on our team that put a grassroots effort together to get the Healthcare Acquired Conditions Program, the HACS program, to be approved by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. It saved an enormous number of lives and resources over the last 10 years. Over the last 12 years, we've been providing free continuing education programs for caregivers. We've always started with the voice of the patient to set our course. Jennifer Digman will be that first voice to open our program. She'll be one of our speakers, and she'll be the last voice that closes us, reminding us that we are loved ones caring for loved ones. Thank you so much, Dr. Denham. Thank you for having me here. And most of all, thank you for organizing these wonderful life-saving webinars. Uh, we are in dark, frightening times in our country right now. The hospitalizations, the positive cases and the deaths sadly are at an all-time high. Now more than ever, it is so very important to learn and understand all that we can about COVID-19 and how to protect ourselves and our loved ones from this awful, horrific virus until the vaccine is out and we are able to get some herd immunity from through the vaccination. We um, have a wonderful group today sharing their expertise. I encourage everyone here on this webinar to share the recording and invite your loved ones, colleagues, coworkers, friends, and family to come to future webinars. I'm looking forward to learning more today. Every single time we have one of these webinars, I learn so much and I'm so grateful. Thank you again, Dr. Denham, and I'll give it back to you. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, we really appreciate your continued steadfast support. Very briefly, uh, TMIT Global hosts these through our educational platform called Care University. Our purpose statement, which we try to live up to, is we will measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. And you'll find that everyone now has become a caregiver in the coronavirus crisis. Our mission is to accelerate performance solutions that save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. 
Our core values are integrity, compassion, accountability, reliability, and entrepreneurship. They spell I care, and we try to live those values. We won't go through our disclosure statement. However, there are no financial disclosures to be made by any of the speakers. There is no funding, direct, indirect, or affiliated from the medical industry device or pharmaceutical companies. Uh, I am delighted to be hosting you today. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and founder of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. And I've got a wonderful group of speakers. Some are live, some are in two videos that we'll show. And the videos that we'll show are part of our certification course. If you wish to take one of our courses, you'll be able to get a deep dive in that content. And the title for today is Providing Care at Home. It's one of our Survive and Thrive Guide series. So we have Jennifer Dingman. We're delighted to have Chief Bill Adcox, who's the Chief Security Officer and Chief of Police at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Gregory Boats has been a wonderful contributor. He was not able to jump on the video today. He's swamped with patients in ICU, as we can imagine. Heather Foster, we recorded last night because she's also swamped taking care of patients. Uh, we also have uh, Keith Flitner, who's a wonderful uh, leader in the scout system, a community leader and an aerospace engineer. Charlie Denham, uh, my son actually, is uh, uh, will contribute to this regarding our lifeguard holiday uh, program. And we also have uh, Paul Bataya, who is a EMT, who will be uh, joining us today and giving us his perspective as a frontline caregiver. Very briefly, for those that have not been with us before, we've had a network that has grown over 35 years to 3,100 hospitals and the caregivers in those hospitals in, in 3,000 communities. This happened over more than 400 projects, and we are just so blessed to have over 500 subject matter experts. This is a graphic representation of what 500 looks like. These are not the real people to protect their privacy, but we have over 500 uh, subject matter experts that are doctors, nurses, security experts like, doc, like Chief Adcox, as well as pharmacists, and a number of experts in multiple areas of risk management and in healthcare performance improvement. What happened was when the, when the coronavirus crisis hit, we realized that there was no training for the families or for frontline essential critical workforce workers. On the right, you see 16 industry sectors identified by the Homeland Security Department uh, and agency, and they had these 16 pre-existing before the crisis. On August 18th, educators at all levels, K through 12, university, uh, technical, and the services provided to education were added as workers. When this happened with the crisis that started in the Northeast, we assembled and we now have more than 60 of our pool of experts uh, who are contributors to uh, all of the programs we developed. And we're so grateful to have them live subject matter experts. And as well, we have contributors, and you see on the second page, there are a number of contributions through segments of two Discovery Channel films that we produced in the area of patient safety. And you'll see some of them today. So communities of practice are what we build. We practice what we call the five C's. We convene you, we connect you, we celebrate what you can bring to our learning community. We believe and we've learned from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement that it, we should have an all teach, all learn environment. We try to co-create with our teams and hopefully change our local communities, but also change the world. So 
this community of practice started out for critical essential workers. However, we found as we were digging deep into the content that the general public wanted to learn with them. So one of the questions we had was, could we deliver deeper dive clinical information and actionable information for our law enforcement and faith-based security leaders and frontline EMTs like Paul Bataya? Could we deliver content comprehensively to them while at the same time meet the need of the general public? And the general public has really resonated with our work. Um, what we've done, we now have more than 600 family responses in a multi-institutional study we're carrying out. And we're so blessed to have Chief Adcox on our team here today, who co-led the development of this research project along with Dr. Greg Boats, who's one of my heroes and our clinical leader. And we're, we're undertaking a multi-institutional study on the five R's, which are how to develop our family uh, rescue plan. This is family rescue R&D, which are, which are readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience, which we won't cover in detail today. However, if you want to watch our pro some of our prior webinars, we take a deep dive through the development of how you would develop a family health or a family security plan. What our discoveries were was that the family training really works. It saves money. It saves liability. It saves lives. Uh, and the other discovery we had was we can't train essential infrastructure workers alone. The family unit is the Achilles heel of our country. Now, we thought that this was true, but didn't have proof in March. However, the recent data, now you see CDC, and at the time of this program, which is in December of 2020, and in the future when people watch this, we're learning that the family infection chains are the Achilles heel of our country. So family transmission chains are absolutely critical. And the issue is if we save families, we can save the worker. If we save the worker, we across communities and save the families, we can save our nation. And this is now becoming true. And that's why our lifeguard holiday program was developed. You can go on our website to see basic modules, which are most of them are four to 10 minutes. The mask video is longer. Um, and then advanced modules that are these 90 minute programs. And you can go back to our website over time. We wanted to remind you that at the time of this recording, we have an infection every second in America. Actually, it's probably about every 45 seconds today and a death at every minute to two minutes. And it's probably uh, less than in a minute as we as we uh, discuss this. The, the faces that you saw on, the, on that slide, and I'm moving, moving quickly, were a 20-year-old college student and a 13-year-old uh, a 13-year-old uh, uh, eighth grader. They both died at home. They both died one in the in their dormitory as a college student and one at home. And so today our webinar, is about providing care at home and what's absolutely critical. So if I back up that slide and you look at these two young people, uh, they did not die in the hospital, they died at home. And uh, it's critical that we focus on this. Now, today's webinar is the fifth of a series of survive and thrive guides that focused uh, on um, uh, these critical issues, which I'll come back to uh, throughout our discussion. But today, we're going to cover two areas of our MedTAC certification course for law enforcement, for caregivers and first responders, uh, as well as faith-based organizations. And these are the practices, practices that are important in caring for someone at home, 
and the technologies. What's the gear that you have to have? So we're going to take a deeper dive into these areas. And for those of you that are coming on first time, you might feel a little overwhelmed. And we recommend that you go back and watch our the videotapes uh, of the prior webinars. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into checklists, specific checklists that you need to have if you're going to care for someone at home. And uh, we we develop these uh, very, very, very uh, carefully with our caregivers, with Dr. Boats, with uh, uh, Heather Foster, who's an infection preventionist with input from uh, top emergency medicine doctors at the Mayo Clinic, at UCSF in San Francisco, at UC, UCI, University of California, Irvine, and a number of Harvard uh, leaders as well. Now, before we, sh we dive into that, we want to give you what the latest information is that's absolutely critical. November 29th, an article came out in The Guardian, which had an excellent graphic, which we found was helpful for people to understand how to put all these times and dates together. They're very hard. And they used a, a graphic, which we have adapted and modified a little bit because now the data has changed with CDC. So we've modified it to be make it up to date as of yesterday. Yesterday, the CDC changed certain guidelines. So what we want you to recognize is that at the time of exposure, there is an incubation period, which is usually about three days, but it could be uh, uh, one to 12 days. And we know you become infectious after you get enough of the virus in your nasopharynx in your body to be able to be multiplying fast enough to get a big enough number uh, so that you can be contagious uh, and harm other people. So when we look at that incubation period, that's just the first, the first phase and you become contagious when you have enough virus to share with others. And so that's when that time period extends. Now, symptoms begin usually at about five days, but they could be two to 14 days after exposure. And we don't know for sure, but there may be as many as 50 to 60% of the people that are out there infecting others have no symptoms whatsoever. And that, day, that date is changing all the time. So when do symptoms resolve? typically at about two weeks. And I found this graphic was really helpful to me to be able to express it to families and say, look, there's an incubation period. We don't know exactly how long, but the virus is in the body. And then you end up becoming infectious and you may not have symptoms. And the infectious period can end at least 10 days after symptoms. Now, uh, I'm gonna show you the new CDC guidelines that came out yesterday. In fact, they came out just before we did a national summit and we have a video, a 47 minute video that we produced that Chief Adcox is in and Dr. Boats is in and Heather Foster is in that was screened yesterday for all the, uh, for universities through Campus Safety Magazine. And just before we aired that video, the press put out uh, an announcement that CDC had changed the quarantine period. However, we couldn't edit anything because we were going live. And yesterday afternoon, they actually changed the quarantine period. And the quarantine period is seven days uh, with a test, a negative test, and 10 days. And you have to watch for symptoms if you're asymptomatic. The isolation period, now that means if you're infected, if you're infected, it's 10 days after symptoms begin or from the time that you get a positive test through, uh, through the testing. Now, the accuracy of the testing is something that's important. If you were exposed to somebody this morning and you go, oh my gosh, I, I better go get a test, you may not have enough virus in your nasopharynx to actually trigger the test with a sample. So you really need to wait um, um, 
two to five days to make sure that you, that the test actually caught uh, enough virus to be positive. So don't be fooled if you got a test too soon and the test is only as good as the time when you got the test. Now, severe illness can lead to hospitalization and ICUs. The latest numbers are two to 29 days in the hospital and two to 11 days on the ventilator. And thank the Lord that we are doing so much better at getting people through this without having to use ventilators and, and saving their lives with a, a number of interventions. But we're still looking at these numbers. And those who pass away typically pass away at about nine to 25 days after symptoms begin. If you look at your hospitalization numbers in your, in your, in your community, it's tip or test numbers, it's typically 22 days uh, after that, that you will see deaths. So we see lots of infection today, wait 22 days and you'll see what those infections did to our death rate, which is really, really critical. So as we look at uh, what, what we'll now uh, talk about uh, uh, today, uh, what I'm going to cover is uh, I'm going to cover the uh, uh, this the, the area that we're discussing here regarding the practices, why checklists, why checklists are important. And I'm going to roll a video uh, that we'll put up on the screen. In the movie The Martian, Matt Damon is stranded on Mars and left for dead by his crew after a terrible storm requires the crew to head home without him. He does not have enough to survive. I'm not going to die here. Matt has to inventory what he has in the space habitat in order to meet all of his needs. Now, you may not have to grow your own food, but you may have to innovate just like Matt did to have what you need for your care room. Although our situation is not as dire as Matt's and supply chains will open up, we will have to inventory what we have and what we can do to get prepared and prepare a care room. Depending on where you are and where you are on the curves, whether it's the first wave, the second wave, or a future epidemic, the status of your local consumer supply chain may be a problem. You may not have or be able to get what you need right away. In this section, we'll address critically important best practices, why checklists are so important, setting up your care room, protecting the home caregivers, and protecting the rest of the family during care at home. The first topic we will cover is checklist. This section is fundamental to safely care for your loved one and protect your family. Our healthcare and professional first responders are used to using checklists. However, their families and the public are not. Forgive us for covering some of the basics. It's vital now that you learn to use checklists. They are critical to you saving your family's life and keeping them safe over time. Movie star Dennis Quaid and aviation hero Sully Sullenberger have helped us champion the cause of patient safety in our past Discovery films. And Dennis has reaffirmed his commitment to help us through this crisis. You will see that their gifts keep giving. Their inspirational messages help us deal with today's life and death challenges. Checklists are the most important safety tools in aviation. They've been absolutely required of pilots for many years. The research has shown that their use prevents simple human errors of life-saving tasks, especially during stress. There's nothing more stressful than caring for a loved one when performing tasks that are unfamiliar and potentially dangerous. We had the terrific honor of working with the leaders of AORN, the Association of Perioperative Registered Nurses, who championed the cause of bringing the WHO surgical checklist to mainstream healthcare that saved many thousands of lives. 
We're taking the World Health Organization checklist and we're combining it with the regulatory requirements so that we can use it in every operating room in America. Checklists help make things simple, predictable, standardized. They enhance communication, just like they do in airplanes. Dennis Quaid has been featured in both of our Discovery Channel films and helped us communicate the value of best practices such as checklists. Although Dennis has played many heroes in the movies, the reason he's a real-life hero is that he has been a dedicated champion for patient safety. He helped us focus the nation on the NQF safe practices and, most importantly, the healthcare-associated conditions that led to tens of thousands of lives being saved and saved billions of dollars. We're so thankful that he is now again stepping up to help us in the coronavirus crisis. Dennis and I have had very rigorous aviation training. We've both been private jet pilots, and we used our experience to promote the adoption of checklists, such as the WHO checklist and national standards. We also had the opportunity of helping accelerate articles supporting it into the medical literature, including those written by medical students. Check a box, save a life. That's a program devised by medical students and nursing students and pharmacy students who realize that students, when they're in training in hospitals, uh, can introduce the surgical checklist uh, as sort of uh, change agents at, uh, from the inside. They calculated, the medical students calculated, that uh, a medical student during their surgical clerkship, when they're learning surgery, is involved in enough operations that if you do the math, if they could get the checklist used in all the operations they're involved in, one life would be saved. Check a box, save a life. Dennis, are you surprised that we're just starting to use checklists in healthcare and having impact? You're an experienced pilot. You know the value of a checklist. I can't believe it, to tell you the truth, that, it, that it's not there. It's, 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 how much does this cost, right? Exactly. It's the most important piece of equipment really on the airplane. The collaborative, empowering culture of Mayo allows nurses to redesign their workflow. They adopt safe practices and even allow their cleaning staff to get involved. They develop their own new cleaning checklist of high contact services to prevent infections using culture methods from other industries. If we can help them not to get more infection, we're not just uh, cleaning rooms, we're saving lives. In the case of the miracle on the Hudson, when time was critical, Captain Sully Sullenberger and co-pilot Jeff Skiles sought to use their checklist because they were trained to know their value, even in the precious 208 seconds they had before their forced landing. The reason the checklists are so important, whether you're flying a spacecraft, an airplane, or working in a hospital, is because we humans under stress forget things, things that we never would think that we're going to forget. A checklist makes absolutely certain that the killer items, the ones that we know are going to cause harm if we don't do them right or do them at all, uh, are not going to be forgotten. It's not a reflection on you as a professional. It's definitely a reflection on all of us as human beings. Checklists will be critically important for you to make sure that you follow the critical life-saving steps to keep you and your family safe. So the takeaways from the checklist section are that they have a proven track history in increasing safety, were pioneered in aviation, and most recently have been adopted in healthcare. They provide simple reminders to follow using a logical framework. They reduce human error that can increase when we are under stress or fatigued and they allow us to prioritize the important tasks that can cause killer events when we fail. Let's move on to discuss selecting, preparing, and setting up your home care room.
What we're going to teach you will not make sense until you understand the use of personal protective equipment. Please watch videos we've posted to teach you how to put on and take off personal protective equipment. The process called DON means to put on and DOF means to take off. Please watch them carefully after you watch this video and before you set up your room and care for anyone. They follow the CDC guidelines. Thanks to an excellent article in USA Today, we have high-level graphics we can use to describe how to prepare your home care room. Our team of frontline physicians, nurse infection preventionists, EMTs, law enforcement leaders, and family leader contributors helped us translate the NIH guidelines for creating an isolation room in a hospital to help you prepare your home care room. Select a room separated and away from the family traffic that ideally should be well ventilated to the outside. If possible, it should have a dedicated bathroom directly accessible by the loved one you're caring for that can be used to wash hands, supplies, and dishes. If another room or hall can be used for a disinfection or cleaning station, it would be great. The care room needs to have a door that can be closed. If you have no separate bedroom for the patient, use plastic sheets or waterproof materials such as shower curtains or tents to wall off the area from others. Any way you can minimize airflow outside the patient's area is worthwhile. It will be great if the care room has an outside window and if the heating and air conditioning airflow is also separate from the rest of the house. Ventilation with the outside environment is in alignment with the principle of reducing the opportunity to be infected from the virus in the air. Now for a quick mention of pets. We all love our pets and at a time like this we really seek their comfort. As early as April 2020, all major healthcare organizations including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the World Health Organization, WHO, and the World Organization for Animal Health say that there is no evidence that a companion animal has transmitted the virus to an infected humans. There are news stories of pets being COVID positive and other animals also being positive for the virus. However, there's no evidence that they give it to their masters or trainers. We will be monitoring the guidelines and update this course accordingly. Your loved one might want to have pets in the room for comfort and they may want to be with them. However, this may not be possible in close quarters. Authorities do, however, strongly recommend that owners wash their hands before and after handling animals, their food, or their supplies, and that people avoid kissing pets. The next topic we will cover is setting up your care room to take care of a loved one. You will know more about what you need after you start and formulate your care room setup checklist from the editable draft that we've prepared for you. If an outside room or hall can be set up to be separate from the family traffic pattern to store supplies, it will be great. A cleaning or disinfecting station should be set up outside the care room door. A table or stand for hand washing supplies, including alcohol wipes, can be set up. Containers with lids should be placed there as well. A cleaning or disinfecting station should also be set up inside the care room door. Both cleaning stations should be equipped with disinfectant supplies. A spray bottle with soap and water or disinfectant is optimal. You need to know where to wash supplies, dishes, and other equipment. Soap and water will be a mainstay if alcohol and other disinfectants are not available. See our videotape entitled Disinfectants and Soap to see how soap kills the coronavirus and what is important about disinfectants. The CDC website provides a link to a list of approved products and documents that you can download. It would be a good idea to post a sign on your care room door to remind everyone to keep the door closed, to wash hands, and any other instructions for safety. 
Remember, you may also want to post a sign in the window or the outside door of the home to protect your family, potential visitors, and delivery people. Even if you're not caring for someone at home who is sick, but you have someone in the home who is in one of the at-risk categories for coronavirus, you may want to post a sign outside. You might provide instructions for delivery people and provide your phone number so that they can communicate to you without violating social distance. Becky Martins is a longtime patient safety advocate on our team, a published author, and helped lead the Grassroots Hospital Acquired Conditions program mentioned earlier. She contributed to the signage templates we provide. As we establish our new norms, we also have to be mindful that others may not be where we are yet. We have to set boundaries that protect us, our families, and the community at large. We have provided examples of editable sign templates on our website, and we'll keep updating them as time goes on. It's very important to have the fewest number of people caring for the patient. We need to maintain what is called, quotes, strict social isolation, unquotes. If multiple people are going to see the patient, it is important to keep a simple roster of each person's name and the date they went into the room. Include maintenance and cleaning staff. This may help in the future when we have testing available for what is called contact tracing. Remove any fabric-covered furniture, area rugs, and materials that might retain droplets. Prioritize the ease of cleaning and reduction of risk to anyone who comes into the room. Set up a way to store and find personal protective equipment that includes masks, gloves, gowns, and eye protection such as glasses and face shields outside the door. Put contaminated waste cans, garbage bags, and all of the patient waste collection materials to be used to treat patients inside the room. The contaminated waste can should be emptied frequently enough to allow space for additional garbage. Containers should reach no more than three-quarters full before emptying. A waste can or container should be placed within reach of the patient and again should be emptied frequently in order to not allow it to overflow. Some patients may be taking insulin or other injectable medications. Used needles should be put in what we call in healthcare a sharps container. The goal is to safely put needles and sharp objects used in the care of a patient in a puncture-proof container that remains in the isolation room. Later in the film, we will describe an option if you need to make a sharps container at your home. Keep the patient's personal belongings to a minimum. Keep water pitchers and cups, tissue wipes, and all items necessary for attending to the patient and for their personal hygiene within the patient's reach. Keep all patient use devices in the room after every use, such as thermometers and pulse oximeters if you use them. Equipment and supplies that are regularly required to care for the family member should stay in the room. It is best if you can use disposable plates and cutlery. Ideally, reusable dishes and cutlery should stay in the care room and be cleaned there. If there's a dedicated bathroom for the care room, these can be washed there. Equipment that needs to be used with more than one family member should be disinfected outside the room. They should be placed in a container with a lid and stored outside the care room while they are clean. Set up mobile phones and landline phones within the patient's reach so they can communicate with those outside. This reduces the need to return to the room to help them and reduces reuse or waste of personal protection supplies that are in short supply. The takeaways from this section are listed in the Select a Care Room Checklist and the Care Room Setup Checklist that we've provided for you. Select your room based on good isolation of the patient. Optimize cleaning stations outside and inside the care room with everything you need for proper disinfection.
establish separated waste and laundry processes to minimize the risk to the rest of the family, and minimize the time in the care room, including placing supplies and patient needs in the best locations. So now for delivering the care to our loved one. Personal protection processes are critically important. We will review them now so that the supplies checklist will make more sense. The processes you undertake before entering the care room, before leaving it, and after leaving the care room are vital to protect not only you, but the rest of your family. Before entering the care room or area, collect all equipment you need, perform hand hygiene with alcohol-based hand rub or soap and water for the compulsory 20 seconds, put on personal protective equipment such as a gown, mask, eye protection, and gloves. Put them on in order so that when you take them off, you minimize contaminating yourself. Again, it is critical to watch the videos regarding putting PPE on and taking it off, which we've posted. Don't be discouraged. It takes those of us in healthcare lots of practice to do this just right. The safety of your family depends on it, and we know you can do it. The order to follow for putting on PPE is wash your hands, then put on the gown, then your mask, then your eye protection, and finally your gloves over the sleeves of the gown. If you don't have a gown, use a washable robe, poncho, windbreaker, smock, sweatshirt, or long sleeve shirt. Anything that can be a barrier between you and the virus that your family member may shed in the room. Your gloves can be washable rubber gloves. Please watch our video, Masks and the Science of Success, in which we've addressed all of the latest science and we're continually updating it on the web. We've produced a print article by the same name with cited references also posted on our website. We address the science behind large droplet and small droplet aerosol risk that can linger in the air. We compare the pros and cons of the N95 masks, surgical procedural masks, and cloth masks. We address the comparative effectiveness of N95 masks, which must be fit tested to get maximal benefit, surgical procedural masks that are very effective to get maximum benefit, and the important factors related to cloth masks. Some experts say the cloth should be as thick as possible and preferably of several layers. We will continue to update this film and our resources on mask alternatives as they continue to evolve. After you've cared for the patient and you're about to leave the care room, you should consider yourself contaminated no matter what. There are very important principles of safety to follow when you remove the personal protective equipment. Remember, hand hygiene or hand washing needs to be 20 seconds of cleaning the palms, fingers, back of the hands, and fingernails. Watch our video on disinfectants and soap. First, remove the most contaminated item. Put washable gowns or robes, rubber gloves, and materials you will reuse in a container you might call your contaminated laundry bag. It should be waterproof or impermeable. You may want to put these items in soap and water quickly if you have a container to allow them to soak. This will help disinfect them before you do final cleaning. Ideally, you would not want to reuse the gown or robe. Remove the gloves and gown or clothing in the care room, but not the mask. If the gown and gloves are disposable, you remove them by peeling them off together. Disposable materials should be put in a contaminated waste can at least six feet away from the patient. The contaminated waste can should have a lid and preferably have a garbage bag inside. If you do not have a garbage can, the materials need to go into a garbage bag. Wash and disinfect your hands after removing the gloves, which you remove first if you don't have a disposable gown. Then remove eye protection, then remove the mask, and then repeat hand cleaning again. If your mask is made of cloth and washable, you remove it last. 
Put it in the contaminated laundry bag before you leave the care room. Try not to touch the front of the mask or bandana when you put it in the contaminated laundry bag. If your mask is an N95 mask or paper surgical mask, leave it on until you leave the room. If you have a sustainable supply, you may put it in the contaminated waste container. Do not touch the mask other than by grasping the ties. Perform hand hygiene and wash your hands again with the usual process. If you're going to have to reuse the mask, leave it in the room and place it in a container marked contaminated until you can clean it. We are waiting for a consensus of the authorities and leading scientists as to how to best disinfect them. Watch our website for the latest developments. After you're out of the room and disinfect your hands the final time and you use paper towels, immediately put them in a waste can outside the door. If you use towels, put them in a non-contaminated laundry bag to be washed. Although they are not likely to be contaminated if you've used them after you've disinfected your hands, it is good to keep these towels separate from the family laundry. The takeaways of this section are to make sure that everyone knows the critical importance of thorough and complete hand washing of all surfaces of the hands, including fingernails. The importance of watching and practicing the Don and Doff procedures of putting on personal protection equipment and especially always considering it contaminated when taking it off and following the care of a patient. The procedures for entering the care room. Tips for caring for the patient and procedures when leaving the care room, which are so vitally important to protecting you and your family from the virus. The final component of this practices section is a brief review of a short list of actions that can be taken to care for your family while you're caring for someone at home, including handling the laundry, cleaning of the home, and what to do upon returning home after being in the public. We will cover a number of typical daily and weekly activities in other Survive and Thrive videos in much more detail. We've outlined the activities covered in this program in a home care team checklist. First off are laundry processes. It's critical to disinfect the laundry room or laundry area after every wash of potentially contaminated laundry. Always separate contaminated laundry from non-contaminated laundry. Wash all regular and non-contaminated laundry first and wash kitchen towels and bathroom hand towels daily. Wash all contaminated laundry last. Disinfect the laundry room while the contaminated laundry is in the wash. Once contaminated items are washed in soap and hot water, they are no longer contaminated and can be put in the dryer. Finally, a couple of highlights regarding cleaning the home. Remember how long the virus can remain on contact surfaces. It may remain viable on metals and plastic non-porous surfaces for at least three days. It is critical to clean such high contact surfaces. Clean all doorknobs, light switches, and bedside lamp switches. Clean bathroom faucets and toilet flush handles. Clean kitchen faucets and drawer knobs and pulls, refrigerator handles, stove knobs, dishwasher and microwave buttons. Clean all TV remote controls, all phones, desk surfaces, keyboards, and iPad and tablet screens. Make sure to clean all railings and floors should be cleaned once daily. The third topic is to address cleaning issues after returning home after being in the public. The upon returning home checklist items. Disinfect car steering wheels and door handles. Remove shoes before entry. Leave keys outside the door before sanitizing. Create a disinfection station inside the door and disinfect hands upon entry. Go to the bathroom and wash hands. 
remove clothes and place them in the contaminated laundry, shower and bathe before interacting with the family. So the quick takeaways for this section are to make sure to keep contaminated and potentially contaminated wash separate, clean all high contact surfaces and traffic areas daily, and make sure to take actions that prevent bringing the virus into the home. Our challenges may not be as dramatic or as dire as Matt Damon's. They are nonetheless life-threatening and require that we be as disciplined as possible. As he did, if we undertake the process of making an inventory of what we need, use what we have, and as he said, science the heck out of the situation, it will pay off. Now let's hear from Heather Foster, a practicing ICU nurse, infection preventionist, a national award winner, and a national patient safety expert. Heather, thank you so much for the time that you've spent on helping us put together the checklists and how to care for people at home. Uh, nurses are just such a valuable, valuable force in our country today. And we're so grateful that you've taken the time and enormous amount of effort to help us uh, with this program. First off, uh, can you affirm for us the critical need for families to understand how to use and practice with checklists? Well, thank you for that introduction, Chuck. Um, as you know, in the medical community, community we use checklists um, on a daily basis uh, for to ensure our patient safety. And I don't think that is any different for families, especially if suddenly someone comes down with a positive COVID, now we have to get ready to quarantine and isolate. There's nothing worse than being unprepared. Mistakes can happen that way. And checklists just provide a, a great reminder of what, of what is gonna be needed. And stress is pretty, uh, pretty uh, important at the time when people are either exposed or they find out that they're sick and they have to isolate. Exactly, exactly. That's going to be something you're going to face. And having a checklist just helps mitigate that panic. Heather, as we set up our care rooms and have a plan to set up the care room, you and I worked uh, pretty diligently with Dr. Boats on taking the isolation requirements for doing so in a hospital and then translating them to the home. Uh, pretty important for those that have to care for someone who's sick. Um, exactly, Chuck. To be honest with you, when our first wave hit, I was somewhat charged, not, not personally, but we had a COVID team that was charged with setting up PPE for our healthcare workers. And it dawned on me as we started working together, I'm not prepared myself, even though um, I'm having to do it at work. It's, it's stressful. Uh, I think we have this unknown fear. Um, am I doing it right? Am I going to contaminate? And if I do, am I going to get sick? And the rest of the family going to get sick? So um, preparing that room or having it um, somewhat prepared before the, before the event hits is, is critical. Now, as we talk about personal protective equipment, it's bandered around the news all the time, but the, we really do need to practice putting on PPE and taking it off. Uh, you want to address what we go through as caregivers and why it's so important to practice? I would love to go through this. I am still looking at resources like um, NETEC and other um, sites that CDC is a great one that gives you the step-by-step -step instructions on how to don and doff or put on or take off PPE in, in the correct steps. Uh, these are important steps that we have to follow um, as we um, take uh, care of the vulnerable. 
And it really does take practice, doesn't it? It does take practice. Like I said, I've taken care of multiple COVID patients, but I still go back to my resources to make sure has something been updated. As you know, we were all very, very scared in the very beginning stages that this was an airborne. There's still some studies to support that in certain environments. So I think it's important that we stay up on the current um, guidelines. Now, as we think about taking care of the family, when we've got someone in an isolation room uh, and or, or someone who's being quarantined that is highly probable to develop the illness, separating laundry and cooking utensils and all of these things takes a little bit of planning, doesn't it? And would you recommend really getting ready for that? I would recommend getting ready for that. We have to be real. I think everyone's home is, is set up differently. I think if we can work within those um, settings and, and making it a plan amongst the family members, including the children, including like we, we've talked about in our other webinars is who is our, our chief um, our CFO, right? So um, having those, again, a part of the checklists um, established beforehand, um, I think it is important, Chuck, yes, um, as, we, as we move into the second, third wave of this pandemic. Another thing that you've said, Heather, before, and you're a wonderful speaker, you've helped us understand uh, the, the fact that uh, we can do this. It, it appears overwhelming, but you've had a can-do attitude. You want to reaffirm that, that fa families, this isn't splitting an atom. I mean, this is stuff that we can all do. I, I, I believe that. I've looked at other countries and I'm seeing what they're doing. I love Queensland, Australia's motto. I've shared that with you, unite and fight. Um, I think as, as the American public moves forward, I think we are doing this. Um, however, I think we can all get on the same page and, and be a task force um, in, in trying to help one another um, with the spread of, of this virus. Thank you. You're very welcome. Apollo 13 flight controllers, give me a go, no, go for launch. Procedures. Go. Control. Go flight. Booster. Go. Retro. We're go flight. GNC. We're go. FAO. We're go flight. Control, this is Houston. We are go for launch. The clock is running. Houston, we have cleared the tower at 13. Guys, we're going to the moon. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Houston, we are venting something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. It's like the heart rates are skyrocketing. The Apollo 13 spacecraft is apparently losing breathing oxygen. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing. Flight, we have loss of radio contact. Econ, what's your data telling you? It's, it's reading a quadruple failure. That can't happen. It's, it's got to be instrumentation. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. We are very early in the life of this pandemic, which is fraught with very complex problems. The comprehensive technologies of vaccines, antiviral agents, testing for the virus and testing for antibodies, as well as the acute care management of severe cases in the ICU are evolving on a daily basis and we all need to keep up on them.
Dr. Harvey Feinberg was interviewed regarding technology in our film, Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami, Targeting Patient Safety. His comments are as applicable today as they were then. Dr. Feinberg is the current chair of the Standing Committee of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, advising the White House on the COVID-19 outbreak. He is the president of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, former president of the Institute of Medicine, which became the National Academies of Medicine, former provost of Harvard University, and the former dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. Technology itself is a tool. It will not solve our problems by itself. But if we have the right leadership and vision in place that inspires others, if we have identified the practices that need to be adopted and implemented, then technology can be crucial to making more progress more rapidly for more people. The technologies we will address in this section are simple and not high-tech laboratory innovations. Nonetheless, they are life-saving as you care for someone in your home and protect the rest of your family. The Apollo 13 story is applicable because you may not have all you need and will likely have to innovate with what you have. In this section, we will cover a supplies and gear checklist, briefly address our seniors and the at-risk populations with a reminder of when to go to the emergency department, and finally, we will address the need and opportunity to innovate when we don't have everything we need. Beth Daly-Ullum is a healthcare governance expert president of Quality and Safety First, and faculty with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She's been a major contributor to this section of the program. Families can really learn and adopt the best practices to keep them safe. It will take being organized and practicing skills that are new to all of us. However, we can do it. In my house, checklists and written plans really help me support my efforts to care for my son's complex medical needs. I have checklists and plans at multiple places where I deliver his care so that I don't forget the critical steps. Now for your supplies checklist. It would be great if you have this printed out or have a paper and pen or a keyboard handy so that you can follow along since it's a lengthy list. Again, continuously updated and editable versions will be posted on our website. In hospitals, we have a similar checklist for items that we will keep outside the door or on a trolley so that they can be available and restocked when need be. The first item is eye protection. Safety glasses of any type can be used. Ski goggles and lightweight industrial face shields to protect the eyes can also be used. The goal is to protect the mucous membranes, the wet surfaces of your eyes, nose, and mouth. The eye protection may also prevent us from touching our face or our eyes with our hands. A face shield may be used in addition to the mask. The NIH recommends using gloves that are reusable, vinyl, or rubber gloves for environmental cleaning and latex single-use gloves for clinical care. You may use disposable hair covers, however, they are optional for nurses and hospitals. The N95 mask offers the best protection from small particles like viruses. It needs to be fit-tested to the individual for best performance. You want to make sure that the nose area and along each one of the lateral surfaces or outside surfaces of the mask are tight. The the N95 designation means that when subjected to careful testing, the mask blocks at least 95% of very small test particles. Surgical masks or a medical procedure masks provide some protection from airborne droplets, but are not fitted to the face. Your loved one should wear one when you go into the room, and especially if they're coughing or sneezing around others to reduce airborne droplets. Ideally, we would all love to have single-use, long-sleeved, 
fluid-resistant gowns and aprons or reusable non-fluid-resistant gowns. If we have none, we'll have to make do with what we have. A long-sleeved waterproof windbreaker or even a trash bag with duct tape can do better than nothing. Plastic aprons are helpful for use over non-fluid-resistant gowns if splashing is anticipated and if fluid-resistant gowns are not available. Alcohol-based hand rub of at least 60% alcohol, plain soap, liquid if possible for washing hands in clean water, clean single-use towels such as paper towels, a safe puncture-proof container for disposing needles used for medication injections such as for diabetic patients. If the patient does not have a medical sharps disposal container as mentioned earlier, our EMT team tells us that milk cartons can be used. We wrap duct tape around this one to make it even safer for punctures. Appropriate detergents for environmental cleaning and disinfection of surfaces. Again, see our video. Instruments such as a thermometer, pulse oximeter if you have one, and mobile phone for the patient. Large plastic waste or garbage bags to be used for waste generated in the care room. Extra bags to dispose of clinical waste by your loved one. And designated laundry bags for contaminated towels and materials. Designated laundry containers for non-contaminated and regular wash laundry that might include towels you have used washing hands outside the room. Dedicated plates and cutlery for your loved one. Collection container for used devices that will need to be disinfected. Now we want to make sure to address the critical issues regarding our seniors and those who are at risk for severe disease. The Centers for Disease Control states that, quotes, based on currently available information and clinical expertise, older adults and people of any age who have serious underlying medical conditions might be at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19, unquotes. The conditions include asthma, chronic lung disease, diabetes, serious heart disease, chronic kidney disease being treated with dialysis, severe obesity, people over 65 years and older, people in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, those who are immunocompromised, meaning that they have less than a normal immune system operating, and those with liver disease. Jennifer Dingman has been a tireless champion for patient safety for many years. She founded Pulse Colorado and Pulse America, two programs focused on medical air. She's a published author in patient safety and has contributed to a number of our U.S. and global programs. I have a husband in the at-risk age group, and my son is a critical infrastructure worker who has had to keep working through this crisis. My message to you is to do everything that you can to protect your families, especially as the social distance guidelines are relaxed. You can have a real impact for your family and in your community. We've developed and tested a checklist for seniors and those with chronic illness who will likely have to stay at home and be separate from our communities for a much longer time than the rest of us. One component is the supplies checklist to make sure they have enough medications on hand, thermometers, food, and the typical devices we need to have on hand for any disaster. They need to have disinfectants, kitchen gloves, have their gas tank or battery charged if they have an electric car, and in case of extended periods of isolation, they should have reading materials. The power or cable might go out. The other checklist is a process checklist to make sure they have their ICE, ICE, that's the in case of emergency lists, contact lists, that they have made the decision of where they will go if they get sick, a medical power of attorney, someone who can check on them daily, and a plan for keeping up on things there at home if they're hospitalized. 
Finally, they need to make sure that they are registered with food delivery services and also if they need to prepare a care room that we discuss in this program. Dan Ford is another national patient safety advocate, a published author and contributor to hospital safety. He champions involving patients and families in hospital safety and quality improvement. He shares his thoughts about the care of our seniors. My comments are from the perspective of a 77-year-old male. I live alone. I'm in good health. I'm a veteran, retired healthcare consultant, have three kids and 13 grandkids, all of whom live elsewhere, uh, half a mile, half an hour away, nine, nine hours and 12 hours. My comments uh, are about and for seniors. First of all, we need to follow the COVID-19 guidelines. If we get it, it's not good, but we can also spread it. Secondly, check on us frequently. Many of us are shut in, isolated, handicapped, and or simply choose to live alone, even if we live in a communal setting. You may save and prolong our life. Next, seniors can also check on each other daily. This is really important from, from a practical and psychological standpoint uh, via phone, text, email, Zoom, or other online programs. If necessary, help a senior to learn how to use online communications, have patience with us in doing this. And lastly, but not least, many seniors have much pride. We don't want to be protected or babied. Baby us anyway, please. It may save our life. Now a final note on making sure family members go to the emergency department when they deteriorate. Dr. Casey Clements has both been a researcher and now a leader of emergency medicine at the Mayo Clinic. He's been a terrific advisor to our community of practice on the diagnosis and treatment of overwhelming sepsis. He now shares a final word on seeking care in the emergency department. Listen to the following news clip from him at Mayo. When is it the point that someone should be looking to go to the ER? The emergency department should be preserved for when things are going really, really poorly. Um, and so that's things like not being able to breathe, starting to coughing up blood, chest pain. <laughs> Some people are also not going to the ER when they should because they're afraid of getting COVID-19, but that's costing lives. We have COVID-related deaths in our community, in our area, and they're not all, they're not infected. And so we, we need to make sure people um, are still coming to the ED when they have to. The Apollo 13 story is one of facing a crisis with courage and living right on the bleeding edge of innovation. The many engineers and leaders solved a number of complex problems. They had to use what they had to do what they could. You never have everything you need, and it becomes even harder to do so when under stress. Whether you are in the first surge, second, or third wave of harm due to the coronavirus, or whether social restrictions are relaxed, remember that nothing we have done has made the virus less contagious or less lethal. The supply chain interruptions of consumer products, personal protection equipment, or products you need for your business may be ongoing. You may have to use substitutes instead of your first choice of disinfectants. You may have to even mix your own concoctions. You may have to use and reuse less than optimal masks and gowns, and you may have to come up with your own innovative ways of separating healthy loved ones from those who are sick. The original MacGyver action-adventure television show ran for seven seasons from 1985 through 1992. Secret agent Angus MacGyver solves complex life-and-death problems by using ordinary objects, along with his ever-present Swiss Army knife, duct tape, and occasionally matches. 
It was so successful that it returned in 2016 using the same theme with a young MacIver again heroically saving the day with practical solutions, applying basic science with lots of action and unique innovations. As Nancy Conrad has said, it's time for our families to, quotes, get their MacGyver on, unquotes, as we step up to the challenges of the coronavirus crisis. A Medscape program for emergency medicine doctors uses the same concept and calls a briefing MacGyver Tips. The lessons there apply directly to our topic at hand for you and your family. Emergency medicine doctors are having to reuse their N95 masks. They're putting them in paper bags and storing them for seven days to let the virus die. You can do this in your home and your masks can be reused and this way you can stay safe. They also show how one can remove a mask without contaminating the wearer by using a Tupperware container that keeps one from touching the mask and contaminating the hands. We are certain that you and your family will find innovative ways to get your MacGyver on. You too can leverage science to innovate. We can't afford to capitulate. The stakes are just too great. The takeaways from this section are plan the work and work the plan. Get your inventory together and organize your supplies. Use the supplies checklist as a guide. Take care of those at risk, including seniors and those with the underlying or chronic illnesses that put them at greater risk for severe disease. Help them prepare and maintain their life. Don't capitulate, innovate. You must use what you have to do what you can. In our documentary, Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami, we address the safety net of leadership, practices, and technologies. Following the film, in 2012, we published an article with Captain Sullenberger, Dennis Quaid, and John Nance, proposing an NTSB for healthcare that would help the patient safety crisis. We challenged the healthcare industry to debate and innovate or capitulate. Our mission was to get healthcare to learn from the aviation industry's success in fatal accident reduction. All four of us were jet pilots. However, both Sully and John were accomplished commercial pilots with tens of thousands of hours. About 20 years ago, the Boeing Airplane Company did a study and projected into the future as the number of airplanes and passengers increased how many accidents we would have if we did not lower our accident rate. We had to take action. The industry took action. It was an incredible example of the whole industry coming together, working together across the lines and creating something that had never been created before. We contended that the patient safety crisis was generating economic and medical risks that were threatening the national security of America. We now find ourselves in an even more impactful and global crisis. Never let a good crisis go to waste are the immortal words of Winston Churchill. They're also Lesson 5 in a book by Bill George. He is the former CEO of Medtronic and professor of Harvard Business School and a best-selling author. Two of his bestsellers are True North and The Seven Lessons for Leading in Crisis, which he wrote after the financial crisis of 2008. In a paper we published with him, he submits a crisis or crucible is an opportunity for us to find our true north and follow our values. He believes these lessons apply to families and our current crisis as well. In any leadership situation, you've got to determine what is the main goal we're all aligned around. And it can bring people together so that everyone feels that sense of passion. It can help people find full health and lead fuller lives. Bill's advice to families in dealing with the crisis is terrific.
Our greatest public health leaders, like Dr. Howard Koh, a former assistant secretary for public health who is now back at the Harvard School of Public Health, recognize the interconnectedness of our community in the mission of public health. This clip from Surfing the Healthcare Tsunami relates to our work in organ transplantation. It is now so timely given that convalescent serum antibody donation is being used to care for patients with severe forms of COVID-19. Public health has such an incredible mix of science and humanity and spirituality. And in the area of organ donation, uh, this is an area where people are making extraordinary gifts of humanity where one person's sacrifice is another person's salvation. And it reminds you that fundamentally we are all interdependent and we're all interconnected and we can all help one another in great times of needs. Penny George has been a dedicated philanthropist and leader in integrative care. She emphasizes the mind-body-spirit connection. My grandfathers are ministers and they cared for the spirit. My father was a surgeon, he cared for the body. I'm a psychologist, cared for the mind and the spirit. And, and in some level, this is a coming together of all those things and saying that people aren't just bodies when they're sick, they're mind, body, spirits. And if you don't have your mind and your body working together to heal yourself, it's much, much harder to get there. Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church serves 186,000 members on four continents and millions of people over the internet. He is frequently consulted by the press as he was for the global CNN coronavirus town hall program. In his messages, he addresses not one, but the two diseases we are experiencing through the coronavirus crisis. I'm Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, author of The Purpose Driven Life and teacher for the Daily Hope broadcast. Now, in our previous messages, I've pointed out that there are actually two different pandemics going on right now. One of them is a physical pandemic, and the other is an emotional and spiritual pandemic. Right now, we're facing the disease of COVID-19, but there's also the emotional dis-ease that's being caused by all the disruptions in your life. You see, the side effects of COVID-19 has created unprecedented stress, uh, and the lives of billions of people around the world have been turned upside down. Long after we have a vaccine uh, for the disease, people are still gonna be feeling the economic and relational and emotional effects of having their lives turned upside down. So, while doctors and scientists are working around the clock to find a cure and a vaccine for the disease or the disease, pastors and counselors around the world are working to help people cope with the dis-ease that's caused by people out of work and it's with schools and churches and all kinds of public events canceled and you know the stress that is caused by these sudden changes in our lifestyles. Dr. Swenson, you become a world authority on burnout through your work at the Mayo Clinic and your book. What is your message to families of caregivers, first responders, and essential critical workers? Professional distress, moral injury, burnout, compassion fatigue, all of these conditions occur when there are insufficient caregiver support resources for the service to be delivered properly. Caregiver and essential worker support resources are everything from adequate supplies, time, sleep, sunlight, teamwork, expertise, listening safe havens, camaraderie, leader recognition, social connectedness, so burnout is stress encountered with insufficient support resources. To flourish, professionals must encounter stress with all they need to deliver the best possible care. 
and you can best care for the caregiver and essential workers by helping with the support resources they need to care for patients and to serve us. Caregivers and essential workers are clearly going to suffer distress and burnout. You, their families, can do so much through your love, especially if they fall ill and you must care for them. This program is not only for families and the public, but for our healthcare families, professional first responder families, families of law enforcement leaders and frontline workers, and the essential critical infrastructure workers that help keep our society going. It is also for our faith-based volunteers in both the medical and security areas seeking MedTAC certifications to address active shooter events before the coronavirus crisis. For you, we want to remind you that God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We will resume your on-site training and certifications after this crisis passes. We will need you for our recovery, restoration, and resilience after the surge hits. As we close this program, we wish you all the best. We pray you keep updating your knowledge of the basics. Continue to build your leadership skills in your family health security plan. Build your competencies and the best practices and learn to use the technologies that enable you to win. I ask our dear friend, Dr. Sanjeev Chopra from Harvard for his advice as we move through this crisis. To those of you who are taking care of loved ones, family members, uh, relatives or friends, with coronavirus, absolute salutations to you for your unbridled devotion and your love. Your family that you're taking care of and society in general owes you an incredible debt of gratitude. One of the key things for you to do is also to take care of yourselves. So make sure you're getting enough hydration, good nutrition, and restorative sleep. If you can meditate even for five or 10 minutes in the morning and five or 10 minutes in the evening, do it. Simple breathing meditation or a mantra-based meditation will bring enormous solitude and benefits to you. This is a totally unprecedented time in the world's history. We are all suffering from collective grief, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Medicines to treat coronavirus will be discovered. An effective and safe vaccine will be developed. Social distancing is already making a huge impact and will curtail the number of new infections and deaths from this deadly virus. Rumi informed us, the wound is where the light enters you. We will emerge much stronger, much resilient, and much more humane as a species at the end of this pandemic. In closing, as we always say to our MedTAC Bystander Rescue care teams, we have to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. Everyone is a patient and everyone can be a caregiver. Our families and future generations are counting on you. So now uh, we, we will run a few minutes over, so we make sure to give our panel a chance to, uh, a chance to comment on what they've seen. 
uh, we're going to introduce uh, to the group uh, a concept that we developed over the last couple of weeks when the when the uh, CDC announced that we didn't they did not want us to get together over the holidays. And Charlie Denham put together uh, a video, and we put together as a team. Actually, Bill and Penny George were our first uh, R and D partners uh, to do this uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday. And basically, uh, the the idea is uh, to challenge families to be your family holiday lifeguard. Not, as all lifeguards will tell you, uh, their job is 90% prevention or even 99% prevention and one to 10% rescue. And so the idea is how do we avoid what we would call uh, uh, double uh, uh, double bubble trouble when we get together uh, a family uh, or two families that live together. And so the goal is to block the family transmission chains. We developed a checklist for before an event after, uh, during the event and after the event in order to reduce the risk be, of bringing these families uh, together or living units together, whether they're college students and we have some young people that are on uh, with us today. And so we put together this strategy to reduce the risk of close contact and the general risks. And this also gave us the opportunity uh, to have our youth really lead the way. So now as we talk with our panel, what I'm gonna do is ask, um, uh, I'm going to ask Keith Flitner to react to this, a scout leader and aerospace engineer. You see Bill George, Bill and Penny George here last week uh, here in California and surely leading this effort. So Keith, can you give us a reaction as to the opportunity for youth, scouts, faith-based organizations, uh, and then whatever else you wish to respond to uh, following what you've seen? My pleasure, my pleasure. Yeah, you know, starting off, it's, it's interesting we talked about uh, family safety and, and Chief Adcox was talking about having us go through um, our family plans in scouting. Uh, it was interesting just at the very first age of Cub Scouts, we started with a fire safety plan in our home and you can see where the, the curriculum and scouting is designed to have the, the youth lead it and having my son take charge of our family plan got them engaged and, and what I've been working with Dr. Denham on is how do we expand that to get our children to be our family advocates for safety. And we come with that concept of a, a family lifeguard where they're also helping, but they're also watching and monitoring that everyone is, is being um, careful and mindful of what they're doing. So again, Scouts takes that from a young age and then they go into emergency preparedness where you have a whole safety plan for all emergency contingencies. And we've now expanded that to actually include COVID. So again, um, you see this concept uh, grow and we're, we're um, looking to even expand it um, beyond just our unit, our, our youth here. And we, we uh, encourage others to do the same. And with the scouting program now taking on um, uh, girls, um, it's open to all families, uh, just like you have with um, any type of family activity, whether it's um, in a, a church setting or, or uh, other youth organizations, it's a, it's a great way to expand on not only safety, but leadership and, and ownership of, of that care within the family unit. 
Well, Keith, thank you for being such a great local leader and uh, and you know, inspiring so many of our youth. And you're also advising our Eagles and contributing to our Eagle Squadron, a group of Eagle Scout candidates that are putting rescue stations at beaches from San Clemente to Newport Beach uh, to, to uh, save lives and to be able to uh, rescue people three minutes from drop to shock. So thank you for your contributions. And that kind of brings me to my next uh, person who is a graduate uh, pre-medical student who will be off to medical school shortly. We're so blessed to have Jamie Irastorza, who is a co-author of an article uh, with us on masks. And one of the things that you'll see um, in the videotape that we will continue to update of this session is some references to our The Science of Masks uh, and success and uh, the detail and a paper, a cited paper. And so, Jamie, thank you very much for making those wonderful contributions to this program. Your thoughts representing the young adults and those of us that are in college and graduate school and uh, in their 20s. I think it's really important to have um, checklists and all of these ideas of what to do, because I know personally for me, when I was at college, um, being able to set up a quarantine room or an isolation room isn't always so doable if you live in like a one person or two bedroom apartment. Um, so I think it's really important for people to be able to have a checklist or at least some guideline so that they're not completely blindsided about what's going to happen. Um, the second thing I would say is that this is all really doable stuff and it's real science. When I would go into the lab and deal with dangerous chemicals or other pathogens that weren't the coronavirus, these are the exact same things that we would do, the, the disinfection of high contact surfaces, wear your PPE. So this is real science and it really works. And I think it's just important to know that um, it's a doable thing. It's not something that you have to be a trained healthcare worker, or you need an MD degree to do. This is something that everybody in our society can do and it will do, have a tremendous impact on the spread of the virus and being able to take care of people here at home. And Jamie, you've really been seeing a lot more responsibility in the young, uh, in our young adults now that they realize that they may be super spreaders and probably are. Yes, that's true. And so another thing um, that so many people are concerned about with this pandemic is the oversaturation and the over overburdening of the hospital system. So you can look at every potential new COVID infection as a potential hospital bed. Um, and so if you can implement these strategies, especially among young people and the people who um, really need to quarantine themselves and do a really good job of quarantining themselves, if you, if you care for them well at home, you're reducing the number of, of beds people have to use in the hospital and that's directly saving lives. Well, thank you. And thank you for uh, that added comment. That's really true. And uh, uh, for those that watch this on demand at a, a future date, uh, many of our hospitals, in fact, I know those here in Orange County where I am are reaching saturation point. Um, we're really, really pleased to have Paul Bataya, who's a, uh, another pre-med student at the University of California, Irvine, who's also the president of the EMT Association at the university, one of our instructors who's just done a terrific job, very supportive, very articulate. And I don't think I'm betraying anything personal since you've shared it on future webinars. You come to us as a, as a very bright, very well-educated, but also uh, a young person who did get the disease and, and, and has kind of a, a, a ringside seat as to what can happen and what's important with families. So Paul, can you share your thoughts? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to being an emergency medical technician, I'm also, I recently became a COVID-19 contact tracer for UC Irvine and also the Orange County Healthcare Agency. Um, and so what we do for, for, for those of you who don't know what contact tracers are, is we, we basically call you if we receive a report of a positive test result from a PCR test for the coronavirus. And we contact you and basically ask about how you're doing. Um, and see if you have the resources that you need. Uh, we might walk you through some of the, the, the things that um, you might already have in your checklist, like uh, how to set up your household environment um, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and then we then you know, look at the contacts that you've been recently exposed to and then reach out to them and to, to advise them to quarantine. Um, and what I found in my experience of volunteering for UC Irvine as a contact tracer is that we, we have seen some, some super spreaders on campus, even in our UC Irvine, you know, pretty safe environment. Um, you know, I, we recently had one case that I was, I had to kind of manage where um, there was this one individual that, that, that drove uh, one person to a certain birthday party uh, a birthday party that didn't involve any mask wearing, any social distancing, everybody was close quarters, uh, and they weren't related to each other whatsoever. And that individual attended multiple other parties in that same weekend. We kind of narrowed everything down to the same individual. Um, and and the, the sad fact is that we are seeing that even in a relatively safe environment such as UC Irvine, and so I can only imagine how it is in other environments. We recently had a, a COVID outbreak with staff and students at Concordia University uh, here in Irvine. I, I live just next to the university also. And so I, I strongly encourage those of you who are, who are young adults to uh, do your best to, to emphasize uh, and to look into socially in, engaging activities that are not in person, right? Do things online. Um, there are games that we can play online, such as, you know, Among Us, for those of you guys who probably know what that is. Um, but there, there are options out there, and that's something to, to keep in mind. Fantastic. And now I want to draw my the, our, our attention to uh, to an article that Chief Adcox, uh, Dr. Boats, uh, Charlie Denham and I wrote that are, was just posted uh, at Campus Safety Magazine article. And this will be in the updated slide set that will have the uh, checklist that we're covering. But we just wanted to uh, let you know that the strategy regarding put together putting together a safety plan is very, very important. And this kind of brings everything all together. We've shared with you today what to do if someone is sick, but the idea is what are the five R's of readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. And thank you, Chief, for stepping in for me a little bit earlier. Uh, and what I'd like you to do is just uh, further enhance your thoughts there. Uh, Chief Adcox is the Chief Security Officer at MD Anderson Cancer Center and also the Chief of Police at the University of Texas, but he's also a pioneer in this area of threat safety science. And so, Chief, your, for your further thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Denham, and thank everybody for being here today. I just simply look at this as a call to action. Uh, I would ask that we all be uh, educated and prepared realists as we go forward. Uh, we're right in the midst of a third wave of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, it hit us right now at the flu season. We're going into winter. Uh, the situation, quite frankly, is, is, um, is serious. So we have to protect our families and ourselves. Um, we have to make sure we have all the information and resources necessary to do that. Uh, these particular webinars and, and, the, and the website and MedTAC will give you that information. It's available. You need to please avail yourself to that, develop your safe, uh, your plans and safeguard yourselves and your families. And um, let's just do our best that we can to be, a, to be a good citizen in our communities. 
and be the, uh, the family members that we are meant to be and let's protect one another. And I would leave it at that and just, just tell you, I appreciate you doing these webinars and bringing all this uh, science-based information forward. So thank you very much, uh, Dr. Denham. Thank you, sir. Uh, and really appreciate you stepping in as always. We want to drop before we go to Jenny for her thoughts, and then we'll do one more loop around all of your speakers is to make sure that you all uh, understand uh, that uh, masks have an enormous argument. And Jamie and I have had just a, a joy writing the article together uh, with Chief Adcox and with uh, Dr. Boats and with Charlie, who you see on this video. This is a 29 minute video, but it really gives the critical essence of the masks. And we want to draw your attention to the fact that aerosols, the small droplets that can uh, where evaporation is stronger than gravity will cause these small particles to float in the air for a long time and get into your airflow systems. Whereas we originally thought it was just droplets and now there's just absolute confirmation that aerosols are a risk. And so as we, as we wind down, we want to remind you that uh, masks are a vital barrier, but take a look at the surgical masks, 99% exhale, uh, and 75% inhale value. And if you look at the two layer and a good cloth mask that's sealed, uh, um, you're getting 60 or even perhaps even a, a little bit more benefit. And so we, we really, um, we will post the article. We're just finishing uh, on the website and we, uh, hope that you have the chance to actually uh, go, dig into the detail as we go into that uh, uh, in, as we go into the uh, that topic. And so this is the, the 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 top section of the article that Jamie was a contributor, a vital contributor to, with the rest of us. So we appreciate uh, so appreciate your attention. Uh, um, Jenny, you're such a great contributor, uh, a great and valuable resource. Before we sign off, we just want to make sure that everyone participates in our survey, which uh, which will will come to Jenny. Be just before we go to you, we just want to, uh, and we're we're right on time now. And we're going to go just a few minutes over. We want to have make sure that uh, if you will please help us. We're trying to get a thousand family responses to this survey. If you've already taken it, take it again. Just say that you've taken it before. And the questions are, my family's ready to take care of a loved one with coronavirus in our home? Readiness. When we talk about response, are we are we able to respond? Uh, my computer's a little slow here. Are we ready to respond uh, if someone gets exposed or someone um, is infected? And Paul is a tracer. If somebody contacts you and says, "Oh, you know, you've been infected," um, do you know what to do when somebody uh, it needs rescue and needs to go to the emergency department? Recovery. Do you have a plan to get people back to the new normal? And then resilience. So these are the questions that are in the survey that we would be so blessed if you could uh, help us uh, address. Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats and I and our team are assessing it. We're going to publish the information, but we're using it to make these sessions so much better. So Jenny, uh, would you please combine your thoughtfulness, and you're always so thoughtful, with your closing thoughts, and then we'll sign off and let everyone go. Jenny. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What an informative webinar today. I, again, I strongly encourage everyone in attendance to share the, um, the taped portions and uh, go to the website and, and view all of the past webinars with regard to this issue, because it's just so important. Great life-saving information. 
do fill out the surveys. These surveys are so very, very important. Um, I, I want to thank each and every one of our speakers for all that you're doing, all of your expertise and your knowledge. And I would like very much to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas and a happy and safe new year. Just please listen to the science and, and do everything that you can as individuals to protect yourselves, your families and others from this horrible pandemic. Uh, thank you again for being here and thank you everyone who's participated today. Um, many blessings to everyone and God bless you all, be safe. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. And Jenny, I, I'll just add one more final thought. The checklists will be available on the website, both in PowerPoint form, but also in Word, uh, Word, so that you can take them and then modify them and make them fit with your family. And uh, what you've seen today will be continuously updated through this coming Monday because we had a few technical difficulties. Go back and you'll be able to uh, actually get all the slides that you saw in the videos as well as the slides that were presented. So God bless you all and we thank you and we, th we wanna thank our reactors for their wonderful thoughts and help. And that ends our webinar for December. Thank you for your attention today. We hope you take advantage of our short videos, our long program videos, our printed content, and our curated articles. We really appreciate all that you are doing. God bless you in your journey to family safety.